Hi, I'm Vivian Wang, co-founder of The Wiser Podcast. Welcome to season three, where we continue to have discussions about women in surgery with Emory surgeons, in addition to interviewing surgeons beyond our local community. Under the direction of our Wiser director, Jessica Liu, an Emory General Surgery PGY4 resident, we are excited to share a season of episodes full of new topics, stories, and people. Hi, I'm Vivian Wang. I go by the pronouns she, her, hers. I recently completed my minimally invasive surgery fellowship at The Ohio State University, where I had the honor of meeting my co-host for today, JC Chen. I'm excited to be doing our first Wiser interview, highlighting some Buckeyes. Hi there, I'm JC, a PGY2 general surgery resident at Ohio State University. I use they, them, theirs pronouns. Uh, we also are joined by Patience to me, a second-year medical student at Emory Medical School, who is the episode editor for today's interview. Her preferred pronouns are she, her, hers. Before I say any more, I want to ask our guests, what name and pronouns would you like me to use? Hi, everybody. I'm Courtney Collins. I'm a general surgeon at uh, The Ohio State University Wexner Medical Center. I go by she, her, hers. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today, Dr. Collins. As a brief intro to our guests, Dr. Collins went to New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York for medical school and completed residency at University of Massachusetts. She subsequently completed an MIS fellowship at St. Francis Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut, and is now an assistant professor at Ohio State who practices general surgery primarily at our OSU East campus. So first off, I want to ask, where did you grow up? Uh, so I am an extremely nomadic person. I grew up in the eastern side of Washington State in a town called Spokane, for anyone who's heard of it. I went to college just outside Seattle at a liberal, liberal arts college called uh, University of Puget Sound. I then uh, applied to medical school all over the country and decided I might as well get out of the Northwest and see what it was like. So I went to New York. Then when I was in New York, I applied mostly on the East Coast uh, for residency, largely because that was where you could uh, get married as a gay person back back in the day. You were fairly limited. Um, so I ended up in Massachusetts. When it came time to apply for jobs, uh, my partner is from uh, New York and I'm from Washington State. So we decided to split the difference and go to the Midwest and we ended up in Ohio. <laughs> Do you have any siblings? Oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> I'm the oldest of five siblings. Are you pretty close with your family? Um, yeah, I am pretty close with my family. Uh, our group text goes off like crazy all the time. We all just really like to take out student loans. So my, we've all been in <laughs> higher education. My brother is a microbiologist in Boston. My other brother's a lawyer. My sister's a chemist. My other sister's a teacher. So we've kind of been traveling around. That's an impressive family. <laughs> Isn't it crazy? My, yeah. my mom says to this day, um, she's like, statistically, like, one of you should be on drugs, but here we are. <laughs> yeah, so we're all, we all just are perpetual students, but yeah, so we've all been trial and we've all done our school all over the country, so we, we, but we try and go back for Christmas and summers and stuff to see each other. Do you feel like you have a good support system with your family? I have to say, kind of addressing the theme of the podcast in terms of LGBT stuff, my, my family has always been extremely supportive. My parents actually, when they moved to Spokane, which is a, it's a medium-sized town in Washington, but it's on the more conservative side of the state. So my parents moved to Spokane in the early 80s. There were very few physicians who would see, um, well, LGBT patients, but most, but more importantly, AIDS patients. Um, but my dad, who was an internal medicine doctor, was one of the only two in the city who would see them. Um, and he and my mom actually founded the Spokane AIDS Network or helped found the Spokane AIDS Network. So my whole life, I really grew up knowing a lot about the LGBT community and feeling like it was a normal kind of thing, which I think made coming out 
kind of a non-event for me. Um, it was just sort of something that was fine. Um, and I think I'm very lucky to have had that. And I really give my family a lot of credit uh, for that. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. how, did, how did you get into medicine? When I was in kindergarten, everyone wanted to be a, you know, a ballerina princess and, you know, a teacher. I wanted to be a zookeeper. That was my goal <laughs> in life. And then when I was about 12, my mom told me, actually, zookeepers mostly just sho shovel poop all day. And so I should find <laughs> something else. <laughs> so because, but I'd always really liked science growing up, mostly animals and stuff. And so it sort of seemed natural. And then actually when I was in high, at the end of high school and in college, I worked as a nursing assistant, um, a CNA at a rehab center, a nursing home. That is direct patient care. That is a hard job. <laughs> um, I really, really like taking care of people. And so kind of combining that with my nerdy science background, I figured it was probably the way to go. Why did you choose surgery and then MIS? Oh my gosh. Um, so I went to, I went to medical school planning on being the world's best pediatrician. That was my, that was my plan. Um, and then I did my pediatrics rotation and I, I hated it. I thought it was just the worst. And so then I did surgery next and I really, really liked it. Like I really did. I loved kind of just like the immediacy of it, being able to see a problem and fix it. But at the time I was like, well, this is crazy. I probably just like surgery because it's not pediatrics. And I just hated pediatrics so much that anything I did after pediatrics, and no offense to any pediatrician out there, God bless you all. <laughs> um, but then I just went the rest of the year and never really found anything that really spoke to me the way that surgery did. And then I went to residency, not really sure what kind of surgeon I wanted to be. I bounced around a lot, like just through, I liked a lot of different specialties. I wanted to go into MIS because I really did like kind of general surgery. I, th I think that's a really important bread and butter hurting is that sort of, that sort of stuff. But I really like the, uh, the MIS approach to surgical problems and kind of avoiding all the complications from big incisions. So I decided to do an MIS fellowship, um, hoping to focus mostly on hernia. You mentioned bouncing around the country. What are some of the differences you've seen in medicine uh, in the West, East, and now the Midwest in terms of how people interact with each other in the hospital or your interactions with patients? I will say in the Northeast, things tend to be a little more formal. It tends to be a little bit more patriarchal. Um, still, like, honestly, where I trained at UMass, I, I, I really liked UMass. I had a wonderful experience. Um, but just sort of rotating around, it, just, it did feel a little more competitive. But it also really pushes you, I think, to be, you know, as, as good as you can be because there's just so many other awesome doctors around you. Coming to Ohio, everyone here is very, very, very nice. The pace is actually a little bit slower, um, which I think is good. I will say, I think here in Columbus, I deal with a much more diverse kind of patient population. I have people from Columbus who live in Upper Arlington and some of these well-to-do, quote-unquote, suburbs. And, but then I also have people from lower-income areas. I have people who drive in three hours from farms. What made you choose OSU in particular? My wife. <laughs> my wife is a, um, she was my fiance at the time, but, but, but my, my wife now is a oncology pharmacist. Uh, she trained um, at MD Anderson uh, Cancer Center and was really looking for somewhere where she could have a really clinical job. Not a lot of places use pharmacists in kind of the way that she wants to be used. She really likes to interact with patients and all that sort of thing. So we, we needed somewhere that was gonna have a role both for me as a kind of minimal invasive general surgeon and also for her. And so they had a job for me. I came out here. I really love the people I met here. Um, I love my division. I love my partners. Geographically, it was nice to kind of be uh, in between our families, so our moms are kind of equally upset about this, you know, <laughs> which is important as well. So I know we're on the topic of more or less being LGBTQ in medicine, so I wanted to go over some definitions. I know we often hear the term LGBT or LGBTQ, and often you hear LGBTQ 
plus a bunch of other letters. The L is lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer. Often you see the plus sign afterwards, which is often used because, as I mentioned, many letters are added on afterwards. So like Q-I-A-A-P, which can stand for questioning, intersex, asexual, ally, pansexual, and etc. There's often a lot of confusion between what sex and gender is. So there's the term sex assigned at birth, which is when after delivery, either a nurse, a midwife, or a physician assigns the baby's sex based off the genitalia that they see on the baby. And then there's gender identity, which is a person's sense of their own gender based off social constructs. So this is typically what we use to define or classify a person as a man, woman, or, or non-binary. There are a whole slew of genders out there. So there's things like uh, non-binary, where someone doesn't identify as a man um, or is or someone who can be gender fluid, where gender, a person's gender can vary over time, and, and so forth. Then you often hear the words cis or trans. This typically is used to define whether someone's gender identity matches their sex assigned at birth. So if you hear the term cis woman, this typically means that someone identifies as a woman and is assigned female at birth. There are a few other definitions that are fairly important as well. So there's gender expression or presentation, which is when you look at someone, it's the physical manifestations of a person's gender identity um, or sexual orientation, which is what most people hear about, um, which is different from gender and sex assigned at birth. Sexual orientation is more about the physical or emotional attraction to someone else. But the biggest tip amongst all of this is never assume. It's always better to ask Um, It's much better to clarify than to assume and and cause someone harm by making that assumption. What is your recommended way when you meet someone new? How would you bring that up? The Association of Academic Surgery had a town hall kind of about this stuff. And I just kind of, I think you're kind of getting more towards on an interpersonal level. But for patients, um, we had some uh, urogynecologists and some other people that that, uh, treat a lot of trans patients. And they really stress that on the patient level anyway, um, it's good just to um, like they just normalize it. It's it's a box on all of their intake forms, um, what pronouns to use. And they give it to absolutely everybody. So even if some like lady walks in with like big hair and like makeup and a huge, you know, they still are like, make sure that she fills out the form and checks what box she used. Because if you kind of do it for everybody, then it's not weird to like figure out who to, who to ask. Um, I know it's obviously different than, you know, when you're meeting somebody kind of on the street or in the hospital. And then when the, those physicians come into an examining room and introduce themselves to the patients, do they automatically include these are the pronouns I go by or is it on a badge somewhere? How do the patients know? The specific urogynecologist, um, she does have it on her badge. Kind of normalizing it, making it part of the process is, I think, important, you know, and just having it be just something that we're all doing now. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. I don't know the best way to ask about, like, interpersonally, but yeah. in terms of pronouns, for sure, the best thing, and I'm always an advocate for this, but no one ever does it is whenever you introduce yourself to introduce your pronouns as well, because it opens the floor for other people to know that, oh, you are aware of these types of things. I can discuss this freely. I actually, I have a a button on my badge that I keep on my hip because of how ashamed I am of it, but that it is at least a way to open up that space. So ideally, if I am unsure of what your pronouns are and I'm meeting you for the first time, I would come up to you and say, Hi, nice to meet you. I'm Vivian. I go by the pronouns she, her, hers, which would allow you to respond in the same way so that you can tell me without me having an awkward question to ask. 
Yeah. I've tried to be more cognizant of this too. Just putting pronouns in anywhere you can think of, you know, like even like on PowerPoint presentations you give will sort of make it a more okay thing. There's a lot of people that I think aren't going to be super ready to jump on board with this. And I think the best first step for those people is just being open if your patient or person you're talking to corrects you, like just be accepting, be open-minded, apologize for the mistake, you know, and then just incorporate it and move on as human beings. And I have noticed that there are several physicians when they send out their emails, it's part of their email signature, which I think is a conscientious part that some physicians there have tried to do. The more institutions do that and normalize that, that's also a great way to make people feel comfortable. One of the last themes I think of education was uh, Dr. Davis, who's now at UCSF. Um, He was like my main mentor. And then when he left, I didn't really feel like I had anyone to advocate for me. And it it was a real struggle. Because it is exhausting, especially if you're the only one. If you have somebody who's different in any way, or one of the very few ethnic minorities in your program, an LGBT person in your program, ask them how you can help them. Because it would have been great if someone else from my program was also saying, hey, you probably shouldn't use the word gay to refer to stupid stuff. And having allies who can help you, I think, help reframe those issues into just like, this is something that as a residency, as a society, we're just not going to tolerate. It has nothing to do with how angry or not angry Courtney is about the word gay. Well, that's not easy. And we clearly have a lot of work to do, especially in the medical field, for sure. There was a 2011 survey of LGBTQ physicians that found that 65% of them heard colleagues disparage LGBTQ patients and 34% of them witnessed substandard care or denial of care to patients. I wonder if Dr. Collins, your father experienced that too, when he was taking care of them. Yeah. You know, I saw a lot of a lot of stuff, I think, being in a from a kind of more conservative ish town. He would tell stories about how or his staff would tell stories about how some of the other doctors in the office had a patient they realized was HIV positive or something that they wouldn't even they would like stand at the door to talk to them. I don't think even back then a lot of them were outright mean, but I, I just think that they they didn't ask the questions they would normally ask. You know, it's like they, they didn't have they didn't have the same relationship. They didn't want to ask about their partners or their their sexual history, which you would ask to anybody else. When I told my primary care physician, she asked me about birth control, and I said, "Well, I date women," which is pretty effective, actually. <laughs> and I remember she asked me if I needed a therapist. Like that was her response. You know, I think people just inherently didn't know how to interact with um, with gay patients for sure, not with HIV positive patients. Um, I think that's still a problem, honestly. The message then, you know, you don't really know how to interpret that, I think, as a patient or a person. Like, if it feels very judgmental, even if even if it isn't, like, it's still just you're being treated differently. Sometimes it is, I think, a unfamiliarity. If you're not, if you don't know people, you haven't had explicit training in medical school, which is extremely important. You don't know how to respond. And then not only does that affect care of your patients, when you're an attending physician and you say you've got a medical student with you who may or may not have come out to you, you may not know what their preferences are, that'll affect their ability to feel comfortable with you too. A study of LGBTQ medical students uh, in 2014 also indicated that they had higher levels of depression, lower levels of perceived social support, and more discomfort with disclosure of sexual orientation, and a majority of them rated their campus climates as non-inclusive. Another study found that 60% of self-identified gender minority medical students did not disclose their gender at school, mainly due to fear. And I'm sure part of that is, you know, you're with people who may seem traditional above you. You want those people to advocate for you, especially as you're choosing your specialty and applying for residencies. So when you're looking for a program or a job, Dr. Collins, how do you determine whether 
you want to be somewhere where there are already existing support systems in place, say a program that has dealt with issues of diversity and inclusion and made concerted efforts to train staff and their physicians better versus going to a place where you know you're going to be the first one. You're probably going to have to deal with diversity and you're going to have to figure out your own support system and build that up yourself. You know, it's, it's interesting hearing kind of JC's perspective on this. Because um, honestly, back when I applied to medical school as a residency, like nobody really talked about this. You didn't really know. Like it, there wasn't a diversity slide on that I can remember on any of the residency interviews I went on. So when I applied to residency, I just sort of had to go with my gut that probably places in big cities in blue states were most likely going to be fine. My college med school girlfriend, we've been together for like six years uh, or so. We were planning on getting married. We were limited legally by where we could go, like Massachusetts and like Connecticut. And then like you thought that New York was getting close, Washington State was getting close. And not only marry your marry your partner, but like just have all the legal rights, you know, hospital visitation, all that kind of stuff, which again, like the kids these days, like don't even have to think about that. That's the thing that's everywhere, you know. One kind of, I think, adva- advantage and disadvantage to being LGBT is that you can't really tell if anyone else is LGBT, <laughs> um, which in some ways back in the day helped you blend a little bit. But also it means you can't really easily identify from a face sheet, for example. You know, if you're African-American, for better or worse, you get a face sheet, you're like, there's 30 other black people here. But I looked at the sheet and was like, I don't, I have no idea like what I'm getting myself into. I ended up choosing Massachusetts. I sort of assumed there would be another gay person there, just because statistically like 10% of us are. And I got there and I found out I was actually the only out one. By the time I got through, looking for jobs was honestly totally different. We, we sort of did lean towards places that are a little bit blue. Ohio is a little, as a state is conservative, but Columbus is pretty liberal. When I interviewed for jobs, I was extremely open about the fact that I had a wife. Um, People would make a very concerted effort to tell me that would be okay, that my wife would be welcome here. At least in some ways, we have made progress, you know, certainly not in every way. We are going the right direction, maybe not at the right speed, but we're going in the right direction. When I look at this trajectory that you're talking about, there always had to be those pioneers that were the brave souls where they had skin made out of steel, nothing phased them, because otherwise... (laughs) There was nobody, right? They didn't have anyone to lead them. They had no support. If you've been in a place where you went to medical school and residency and you you know you have the skills and the personality to be able to go to a place where you're now the first faculty member that's out at an institution and maybe be a support system for the medical students after you, then do it. I would totally agree with that. I think it depends on where you are with your support network. For residency, I applied basically... Only two East Coast states that I knew would be supportive or Midwest states. More than half of my residency list was on the West Coast. In some way, there is some benefit for OSU or Ohio in general, because if I were to go to any of those blue states, you know, there's already so much work that's been done that I don't know how much of a difference I I could necessarily make. Whereas here, there's a lot of work that can be done with the community and so forth. Are there any things that OSU is working on currently or the residency is working on currently? One of our colorectal surgeons is opening up a anal dysplasia clinic uh, because he's seen a lot of the high-risk patients who are HIV positive, MSM, trans folks, don't get the care that they need. Um, and he wants to increase access. And so that was something that I felt like really meshed both my research interest as well as surgery, because I, I couldn't find that anywhere. 
Dr. Keister had opened up the trans primary care clinic through the IM department here. Whereas, you know, if you go to Boston, you've got Fenway, you've got UCSF trans clinic, you know, they're, they're a huge center over there. I could help those places, mm-hmm. but it wouldn't necessarily be as impactful as you know, starting a new. Just because you're in a blue area doesn't mean that everyone around you is going to be the way you think they are. Massachusetts, very liberal state, but I was still in a surgical residency where I was the only gay person. Mm -hmm. Um, There was still a lot of prejudice against LGBT people. So I think you can make a difference anywhere. Sort of backing up, I think it's really important to emphasize, kind kind of like Vivian was alluding to, this is not a battle that everybody has to fight, I think, especially, and I would say that especially to medical students. If you're in a situation, I think, where people are being super discriminatory, you don't have to feel ashamed of yourself for not speaking up at every, you know, thing that you hear, because those are battles that that you don't have to fight by yourself. You may need someone higher up than you to, to help you. So it's important to find people that you can talk to and be like, hey, this happened and I don't think it's okay. You can't take on the whole system by yourself and you shouldn't feel pressured to, and you shouldn't feel like you're not doing your job as an LGBT person just because you let, you know, some homophobic surgeon say something and you didn't immediately speak up. Go find somebody who can advocate for you. You don't have to feel like you're in this by yourself. I will also say, I think it's okay not to do something that is LGBTQ related as your life goal, because I feel like throughout med school, I was definitely pigeonholed to try and pursue something that was, especially in surgery, that had to do with trans care. But that's not what I wanted to do. Like, I wanted to help the community, but not necessarily have it be all of my life. I just wanted to be a part of it in some way. So, Dr. Collins, how has your experience been navigating medicine with your partner? How has it impacted your choice of specialty, location, and your interviews? So I will say this is a very personal decision, I think. It's okay to do this differently. I was very out in all of my interviews. I personally felt okay doing that. I'm not sure why. (laughs) I think part of it may have just been my upbringing. Part of it may just be that I always sort of felt that being gay was okay in general. I understood that surgery was different. In kind of my young naivete, I guess, I was like, well, I don't want to be at a program that doesn't accept me as a gay person, you know, and if that's going to make them not rank me, then I don't want to be there. For jobs and really living, I think it's important to be somewhere where they're going to be okay with you, with me having a wife. We did worry a little bit about moving to Ohio. We did worry a little bit culturally about it, but we heard that Columbus was pretty accepting and we were willing to kind of give it a shot. Uh, In terms of specialty, you know, again, I didn't really let it affect my decision of what to go into. Again, that might have been naive at the time, but I was like, there's got to be somewhere I can go. I I mean, like, there's got to be. There has to be. What initially piqued your interest in women's surgery? So, okay, to be honest, I was not a big feminist. One one thing that was really impactful for me is I um, listened to Caprice Greenberg's Sticky Floors and Glass Ceilings thing, and I just sort of realized that women actually do get treated differently in surgery. I think why I hadn't noticed it is it's not overt, right? No one was like yelling at me for being there. Okay, I'll ask you this, Vivian. When you put in a chest tube on the floor, did you clean up the, the, the supplies to put in after you put in the chest tube? Did you do that or did always. the nurses do that for you? Always. 
I did. I'm reading the sticky for you know, this thing. And, and it's like, male residents don't do that. This was a survey from a little while ago, so maybe you've all transformed. But the, the majority of male residents don't. And I was like, that's insane. I don't believe that. So I sent a text to my chief group. I was like, hey, two male surgeons on this thread. Did you guys clean up your supplies when you put it in chest tube? And all the women chime in with, yeah, of course we did. And they both said like, no. Or even more tellingly, one of them said, well, I would always start to. And then the nurses would come in and be like, oh, no, no, I got that for you. And I'm like, oh, my God. They just lived in kind of a different world. Also, kind of things that I was reading about looking into with one, our new vice chair of diversity, Sabrina Noria, is just the language that people use in letters of recommendation to talk about female trainees versus male trainees. And they can be equally complementary. Men tend to, they're, they're, they use, they're strong, they're good leaders, they're assertive. Women kind of get their, they smile a lot and they're nice, good tempered, you know, that sort of thing. They may like these residents equally, but they're just using different language. But the problem is that people reading these letters of recommendation are mostly men who are going to gravitate towards these strong assertive leader stuff and they just say she's nice I think that means she's probably not good you know <laughs> I mean so we still have a ways to go with how women are seen and, and treated in in the surgical world you mentioned women themselves have a long ways to go what are your thoughts on when you take an intersectional approach and think of people with multiple marginalized identities so people who are LGBTQ and women people who are um, black and women, people who are all three black LGBTQ women, you know, how do you see that impacting their role in women's surgery? Intersectionality, I think, is such an important topic. I honestly wish I knew more about it. I guess being a gay woman, I do sort of occupy that space a, a little bit. I really fully acknowledge that the world is harder for um, African-American or Latino LGBT trainees. I don't think my experience can really compare to kind of how how hard that can be. We've got to do a better job of finding support for these people, either at their institution or, or outside. I think it's really important to have somebody, even if I just had one who was also a gay surgeon, to be like, yeah, it's okay that you're out like you are. Like, yeah, yeah, it's okay that you corrected that chief resident. I do think sort of changing culture kind of boots on the ground. You know, just the residents are very helpful for this. Residents are everywhere. If all the residents use JC's correct pronouns, the attendings will feel pressured to use the correct pronoun. If, for example, JC is going to come to East. And so if someone misgenders them when in my OR, like it's my job to be like, that's not actually the right word. Start having this be more of a pervasive kind of normalizing it out in the real world is I think another really important part. I think too that, so that's actually one of the things that I struggled with with med school is that me and a group of people had tried to kind of try to incorporate diversity throughout the entire curriculum rather than just do one spot here, one spot here. So that it normalizes diversity in all aspects, whether it's like different ability, race or LGBTQ, like anything really, because it just needs to be more pervasive rather than just this one stop shop. And I remember throughout all of this, you know, I was reading you know, only 30% of med schools really teach anything on LGBTQ um, and even less teach anything on trans health and so forth. So it's, it's very clear that it's very much needed. When I was a med student, I had an intending to make just like blatantly homophobic remarks to me. He knew I was gay and he would talk about me as one of those people, you know, like, I mean, so it it get, it does get better. It, it does. I used to get really mad when people would assume I was straight. A lot of times we have to just sort of be like, okay, they didn't mean that. I'm going to just try because I'm going to, you know, I'm going to tell I'm for sure going to make mistakes. And I think we as LGBT people have to acknowledge that in this process, people are going to make mistakes, you know. Um, for example, JC, I am sure I'm going to mess up your pronoun at least once. I'm going to feel terrible about it. I'm going to think about it for days. It's going to happen. You know, nobody's perfect. We really all need to work together. And because and changing culture takes a long time and a lot of people. But it's important to have conversations like this 
to find allies to figure out, like I said, JC, when, when JC, when you come to ease, I want to know how I can help. It's important for me, I think, to ask you what you want me to do when someone misgenders you in the OR. Do you want me to make a big scene? Do you want me to just let it go? I mean, like, because people are going to be different too. Like, I mean, you may be like, yes, I want you to throw something and make a thing. <laughs> and someone else may be like, no, please just let it go. Like, I can't, you know. And I, I think this is actually an area where residents can have that kind of power. Because if I am a senior resident and I know I have a junior resident like JC on my team, and I'm someone who is generally well accepted by my attendings because I am straight and it's easy to accept me, and my attendings respect me, I can use that as in my power to educate them about JC when they refer them incorrectly. So I really encourage for all the listeners out there who are residents to really back up your co-residents. It's pretty easily done and it won't impact your reputation or your ability to function as a good surgeon and as a good resident. I spoke to basically entire residency cohort saying, especially with the new residents coming in and with the senior residents, please speak on my behalf because all of the attendings misgender me now. And it's like, mm-hmm. it's not even using they, them. If you use they, them, that's that to me is so shocking, but it's don't gender me as a guy just because I look the way that I do because I identify more with my sex assigned at birth than I do with any experience as like growing up as a guy. So when people advocate on using she, hers for me, I get surprised by that too. And that would be wonderful if more people could do it so that I don't have to fight for that because it's so tiring. Sorry. No, that's great. It's important for people to hear that story. And as difficult as it is for you to probably open up about those, people will be more sensitive to it. And it should hopefully change that culture. You refer to yourself as an old people person. I'm going to clarify to listeners, does not mean you're an old person. It just means that you have an interest in older patients. You very much have tailored yourself as a geriatric surgeon. You have an interest in palliative care as well. Yeah, so I, um, I've i always had an interest in older, older surgery patients. People tend to get labeled by their chronologic age. They're very healthy 80-something-year-olds. They're very sick 50-year-olds. Um, I think surgeons have struggled in the past with really knowing what to do with um, older patients. And it used to just be we just didn't operate on anybody over the age of 75, but now we are. And so we're trying to figure out better ways to take care of them. So my work here got accepted as an uh, American College of Surgeons Geriatric Surgery Fellow, which is very exciting. And that's the purpose of that is twofold. One is to uh, help Ohio State implement some of the new geriatric surgery verification uh, program elements, which um, is a very comprehensive program encompassing the kind of entire perioperative care pathway for older patients, you know, really working on their pre-op uh, workup, making sure that they get really optimized for surgery instead of kind of, for the most part, across the country, surgeons just tend to send people to anesthesia, make sure their heart and lungs aren't going to give out during surgery, but it doesn't really give a comprehensive view of their nutrition, their, you know, their uh, delirium risk, their social situation for when they get home. Focuses on their hospital stay, making sure they have geriatric friendly rooms with big clocks and like beds that are close to the ground, and then really working on their transition to care um, after the hospital stay. On the other part of it is looking at uh, patient reported outcomes, kind of working with Andrea Pusich and the Larissa Temple, um, who are really big names in patient reported outcomes, and sort of trying to reframe um, the patient reported outcome space for older patients because they have different outcomes that are important to them than younger patients do. Um, and a lot of the, um, when we ask patients what they think about surgery, most of the surveys and instruments for um, reporting outcomes tend to focus on things like, well, how long did it take you to get back to work and like from surgery and figuring out what their goals are, what's important to them so we can make more goal concordant care. They're, they're just super cute. 
put that They're in there. Very cute. <laughs> I personally love my 80 and 90 year old. Don't people. you? They're very cute. They're very grateful, I think. Um, I think I see a big cultural difference in the older patient space. They want me taken care of. They're very deferential and they're just grateful for, yeah. you know, I think it's just because of what they've been through. Like they've been through the depression and all this, all this stuff. Like they, like they're okay with a little bit of post-op pain. They're just like, they're fine with it. Like they get right. it. And so it's just, it's a different experience. Right. And my issue is that in response to them being so awesome, like we just don't do a good job taking care of them. Right. You know, right. <laughs> like we just, we just really don't. There's actually now, or there will be in the next, I can't remember this. There will be in the next 10 years more, old people than children in America, but there are way less geriatricians than pediatricians in the country. Mm-hmm. And there's no such thing as a geriatric surgeon, right? You know, yeah. there's, there should be. One of our first projects is going to be trying to come up with a new, a, like a new clavian dindo classification that's more patient focused. So we kind of stratify our clavian dindo based on what kind of intervention, right. you know, they like, did they go to the ICU? Did they get a drain? I think, I think going to the ICU is worse than getting a drain, but I bet for a patient, they'd rather spend a night in the ICU than get it, like go home with a drain or like a wound infection is a class one. But for someone, an older person who has a big wound infection, they have to get packed every day. That's a way bigger deal than having a little you know, IR drain that they just live with for a while. Fair point. So in Life Beyond Surgery, what are your hobbies and interests? I really love to read. I'm a, I read all the time. I really like music, actually. I was I went to college on a French horn scholarship. Still, or at least in the before time, I still played French horn here in a band. My wife is really into sports, um, so we love going to Ohio State football games. We love the, we love going to the Blue Jackets. We also really like to be outside. Um, I think that's partially from me coming from the Northwest, um, so we like to hike. And then really what I really love to do, again, before COVID was a thing, is we I, I really like to travel. So what is something that we don't know about you that might surprise us? Should have saved the French horn thing. That was a... <laughs> <laughs> tattoos, tattoos. Oh, right. I've got a new tattoo every year I've been in a, an attending, actually. Because I know the viewers can't, but I have an elephant on my arm. <laughs> and I have a, like a boat scene on my back. My elephant tattoo is a couple's tattoo with my wife. One of our first dates was visiting the elephants at the Houston Zoo because she was in Houston at the time. It was like the worst weather ever. It was like 120 degrees or something and totally humid. But the elephants are really cute. And we figured if we could get through a date that terrible that we could probably make anything work. <laughs> So when we got engaged, we got them. She was worried that people wouldn't want a surgeon with a tattoo, but he is very popular. Like with my patients, they really like him. What accomplishment are you most proud of, work or work non-related? My wife is my biggest accomplishment, honestly. My wife and I met in residency. She was also a residency in pharmacy. We really have worked hard. I love that we were able to find jobs where we're both just as happy as we are. Like if I have to pick uh, my wife or my job, I will pick my wife every time. I will say from a work perspective, I'm very proud that I sort of found my own path in surgery. And a lot of people say that you don't want to just be a general surgeon, which is what I think I am. And I actually really love being a general surgeon. And I think that for trainees, you know, finding finding the path that makes you happy, whatever it is, if you want to be the chair of UCSF, go for it. If you want to be a rural surgeon and do crazy stuff in the middle of farmland, like go for it. I am very proud that I've kind of been able to really stay true to what makes me happy. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bye, everybody. Dr. Collins is co-planning OSU's 5th Annual Women in Surgery Symposium, and all are welcome. It will be held on March 6, 2021, with more details to come. Send us an email if you're interested in learning more at wiserpodcast at gmail.com.
Last year's highlights from the fourth annual symposium can be found in our special mini-series from season two. Thanks for tuning in to today's Wiser podcast. Hope you join us next time for another great interview. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Wiser Podcast, or send us an email at wiserpodcast at gmail.com to join our email newsletter list. Thanks for your support, and we hope to hear from you soon.